When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast is brought to you in part by iFly Virginia Beach Indoor Skydiving. At iFly Virginia Beach, we bring people together through the dream of flight. To learn more about our leadership development and team building, visit iFlyVirginiaBeach.com. Welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast series with U.S. Navy Special Operations veteran, CEO, and hockey fanatic, Bob Pizzini. Bob discusses leadership, success, failure, defining moments, and hard lessons learned with guests who are intentional in their approach to leadership. Leadership is a perishable skill. Use it or lose it. In this series, entrepreneurs, industry executives, academics, public figures, and other highly effective professionals share their formulas for success with you. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Elevate Your Leadership with me, your host, Bob Pizzini. I love to interview, not even interview, I love to have discussions with people who have brought great value to me and my organization. And through those discussions, there's no doubt in my mind that they will bring great value to you and your organization. And today's guest is no exception. For more than 30 years, Sue Bingham, a former human resources executive, has provided direction to companies in the transportation and logistics, pharmaceutical, aerospace, food, bottling, floral, optical, textile, and medical device industries, just to name a few. She has worked closely with company leaders to analyze their organizations and facilitate the implementation of common sense systems that have a positive impact on the organization's bottom line. She is an expert at effectively using culture to form a common language across global operations, leading to greater collaboration, higher levels of team member satisfaction, and increased business unit cooperation. Her passion is helping companies embrace and transition to high-performance work environments. And Sue, before I turn it over to you to say hello, I just want to say that there's a lot in her introduction, but as an owner of a business with 35 people and a management team and all the dynamics that happen in the workplace, I can tell you that Sue's book and Sue's processes are time-tested. This is not rocket science. And she has done a great job capturing this for you, the listener. Sue, welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. Thank you, Bob. You know, there's so many places we can go with your book, The High Performance Workplace, and the processes that you have in place. But I want to start with a very basic understanding of how this book came to be. Well, I'll give you the short version. I was, you know, very young in my career. I was in a human resource job in an aerospace company that was very traditional. People were yelled at as a form of performance improvement. So uh, we got a new 
director of employee and labor relations, and he brought with him a totally different approach to not just human resources, but management in general. I quickly tried to study as much as I could under him. I learned a, a philosophy that he had used to open lots of plants that were salaried, where all employees were salaried. There were no keys, no guard gates. People could come and go in these plants, and they were high performing, sometimes, sometimes two to three times more performing than the more traditional facilities that have been in operation for years. So he shared that with us, and I was the corporate training director, so I had the opportunity to try to develop training to support this practice, this methodology, and to make it in a way that it was sticky, that it would, that people would use it. And we went on to open five plants using this methodology. Again, they outperformed immediately while people were still in training. And secondly, we converted to union plants to wow. <laughs> non-union plants in terms of using this approach. That's, it, it was very tried and tested. It was common sense. It just made sense. We have no idea why everybody isn't doing it, but they don't. So I kept taking this methodology with me through other companies and then went out on my own and, and decided I, I didn't want to limit just one company's opportunity to do this. I wanted every company to at least have the opportunity to look at this approach, this methodology, incorporate it, because it's pretty easy to incorporate if you're open. You know, it is easy to incorporate. One of the beauties of the book is I'm, I've got it in my hand now and I'm looking at it for the page count. So about 150 pages. And again, not rocket science, not terribly difficult, but things that every leader should put in place and every member of the team should be aware of some simple theories. Before we dig into those particular, you know, the particulars in the book, I, I have to say that I'm seven years into my business and it's as if this book was written as a history of the last seven years of my business. You know, we go through this forming, storming, norming, performing, and I don't even think those words are in your book. That's out of Performance Management Institute. But the book really, really lays out the journey that we've gone through. And I'll give you a quick example. One, one quick example. So you have the 95-5 kind of, I don't know if you call it a rule or a theory, but nine, you know, it states that 95% of the people in the workplace are of good moral and ethical character. They want to make meaningful contributions to the organization. They want to feel good about what they're doing and, and they want to be proud of the place where they work. And then there's 5% who aren't that, who aren't going to do that. And the rule book, the HR, and you have an HR background, that HR background is written for the 5%, which ultimately has a negative impact on the 95%. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes. I mean, if you look at how we spend time and attention, we spend a lot of management attention on the 5%. And that takes away from even just attention to the 95%, the reward and recognition. In fact, when we say, what do you do for your high performers? We usually say, give them more work, you know, because we can count <laughs> on them. We ride the, we ride, ride the good horse. The 5%, uh, let me take an example. Most companies large companies in particular have a policy that says that you've got to be at work the day before and the day after the holiday in order to get paid for it. That's a rule created for the people that were taking an extra long weekend, but not trying to schedule it or working with the company to do it. So they just put in a rule. Then you have a guy who's coming to work and gets in a car accident and isn't able to come in 
And this could be somebody that's very loyal, hardworking, you know, you can always count on them being there. And now this manager is faced with this black and white policy that says, I can't pay this guy for the holiday because he wasn't here the day before. It makes no sense. And good managers usually find ways to work around it. I remember one operations director said he changed the payroll input, which, you know, of course you don't and shouldn't do, but he felt it was so wrong to treat this good employee and dock them a day's pay. Sure. Uh, You you know, that goes to one of the points in your book about treating everybody the same. So I outsource, again, 35 people in my organization, I outsource my HR. And we don't have to use them very often. We did a lot in the beginning, unfortunately, but we kind of figured things out. The person that we work with is a wonderful person. She would always say, as long as you're treating everybody the same, if you do it for one, you have to do it for the other as long as you're treating everybody the same. And yeah, I didn't like that because everybody's not the same. You do have these superstar performers that should get more work and more recognition and more pay. And then you have, you know, pioneers, migrators, settlers. There's a lot of different ways to look at it. You know, how do, how do companies avoid this HR treat everybody the same? Well, they don't. Most companies are handicapped. In fact, the biggest obstacle we run into in working with companies is the HR department because HR has been trained, and I know I was one of them, has been trained to create those policies, follow those policies, enforce those policies. In fact, sometimes HR departments have decision-making authority over operations and they're the management. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Crazy. You're absolutely right. We believe that the difference is that you want to be fair. And we think 95% of people understand what fair is. And if you can explain any decision that's made in a logical, rational way where most people would understand it, then that's being fair. And that's your standard. That's what you work for, not being the same. By the way, in any kind of employment-related litigation, we almost always win. It takes a really bad adjudicator who just doesn't want to listen. But we, we've won unemployment claims in California. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. We, That's a whole other book. <laughs> I know. Unemployment claims in California because, and I was there for 15 years, because we believe that what we do is we explain our culture. We explain that we don't have a lot of rules. We explain that we have one expectation And that is that everyone's expected to act in the best interest of the company and their fellow employees. And if they, and if somebody doesn't do that, isn't acting in the best interest, it's pretty apparent. And then we have a problem solving discussion. We do not do the traditional progressive disciplinary steps. Those are draconian. (laughs) Somebody said it's like trying to make someone better by treating them progressively worse. It's not the, not the way to do it. So we, we explain what our approach is, what our philosophy is. And usually the adjudicator looks at the employee and goes, what, you know, what's wrong with you? Yeah, that's, you know, culture is what you mentioned there as well. Culture is huge. And I think when organizations focus on culture, they really have some place to go and they really have some very tangible gains they can make. I have a a strategic vision that I put out every year and I call it a quad chart. It's, uh, you know, something from my military days. So there's four sections to this document, if you will. And one of the sections has always been focus areas and under focus areas, um, fitness, culture, you know, professionalism. I had all these, these, but culture was a bullet under focus areas. And about three years ago, I realized culture is its own focus area. 
So now it's a, it's a Quinn, not a quad chart. It's a five sec. So I, you, whatever you call that, but culture is its own section and culture has uh, six bullets underneath it. So focusing on culture is very important. And, you know, how do you address that in the high performance workplace? The companies that, that truly do the best job and that reap the best results are those where it's, and you just said it perfectly, where if they've got three or four key initiatives, every year, one of those initiatives is around the culture. It's around continuously improving and providing feedback, knowing where to expand. Do we need more training? What are we doing to promote people, to give them more opportunities? Are we developing networks? Do we have think tanks? All those companies are focused on the how. Do we do our work with the people, which is the culture, but they make it a priority. Um, If you look at most companies, most companies have staff meetings and they talk about where are we with our products, our customers, you know, how are we performing? What's the bottom line? What are our expenses? What are our costs? We don't talk about, have meetings that talk exclusively about how are we performing as an entity, as a human entity? How are we performing? We don't have meetings to talk about that in most companies. And yet we know that that's such a driver for performance. You know, culture should be, and it is in, in my organization because I, its own section in our strategic vision, but culture should be an agenda item or a line item at the weekly executive leadership meeting. It really should be. When I developed the culture component of my strategic plan, I literally went to the team. Yeah, not even the management team. I mean, I went to the whole company and said, you help me identify the culture. And if we're not there yet, you, you tell me where it is we need to go and we'll figure out how to get there. So, so my six bullets that identify the culture within my organization, most of them were developed by all 35 members of this team. And what I've noticed over the years is we will add and subtract or modify. You know, culture, I think, is kind of a moving target. That's why management or leadership needs to address it on a reoccurring basis, because it is a moving target. And you can get, you can get one bad apple in there who can really send the culture sideways. That's, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I, I, you have something there? I was just going to say COVID is a good example of fast forwarding the need for culture change. It's forced companies to recognize that people can work remotely and can be productive and that some people enjoy that and are more productive that way. And some people want to come into the office and the site area that one size doesn't fit all. So the advice we're giving to companies that are now looking for, what do I do that now that people can come back into the workplace and so on, is to say, you you need to be talking with people about how do you best support the company objectives and at the same time, meet their needs in terms of what's most productive for them. I've I've heard a new statement that I really like lately. Instead of work-life balance, the term was work-life integration, which makes more sense to me because that's the way I've always worked. It makes a lot more sense. Absolutely. And if you love what you do, work isn't onerous. It's not hard. It's time consuming, but it's, it's something that you really enjoy doing. Yeah. And you feel good about it at the end of the day. What did I get done? What do I have yet to do? What, what awesome thing am I going to tackle tomorrow? Uh, it is, you know, in preparing for this podcast, I was like, hey, I can't wait until tomorrow. I get to have this discussion with Sue Bingham. A lot of fun. Folks, we are talking to Sue Bingham, the author, co-author of Creating a High Performance Workplace, 
And we are going to take a break for capitalism. When we come back, we're going to talk about those 5% that uh, have a tendency to hold the company back. Back in a minute after this break for capitalism. And we are back. We're talking to Sue Bingham, co-author of Creating the High Performance Workplace. And I have to say, as I said earlier, Sue's book, it seems to be a history of my business, I Fly Virginia Beach Indoor Skydiving and the way our team members have, have come and gone and evolved. Now, you know, turnover is something that leaders of any organization should strive to avoid. They don't all strive to avoid that. In my case, I have a largely 20-something workforce, and you know, I don't want them to do this for the rest of their lives. I want them to go on and do great things. And that goes to my, my definition of leadership, which is enabling others to accomplish their objectives. Now, 90% of that is related to ROI within the business, but they might have, and they should have objectives outside of this organization. And as a leader, I want to help them achieve those objectives, go to school, get a degree, go get a real high paying job, you know, flourish, become an entrepreneur, whatever that is. So, so that's kind of how I, I approach leadership in, in, in one aspect, but, but there's those 5% who, that, you know, they're punching the clock, so to speak. And they're who these volumes of HR manuals are written for. What do, what do we do about that? How do, we, how do we avoid it? How do we deal with it? The avoid is easy. One of the things that we advocate is peer hiring teams, leave management out of it when it comes to the front line. <laughs> that's brilliant. But, I, you know, I, I can see the rejection from managers, but that's a brilliant concept. Well, they do. They, they do reject it. And, and um, so, but, but if you let the team do it, if you ask a, a supervisor or manager, what is it you're looking for in a person? They're looking for someone that's reliable, that's probably got a good attendance record if they can find that out, that hasn't done a lot of job hopping, that's got some related experience. That's what they're looking for. You ask a team of people, what attributes are you looking for in the guy working next to you, the person working next to you? They'll, they'll give you a list of 25 traits, which include likes to have fun, learns quick, got my back, you know, helps others, proactive. I mean, they'll have a big, long, trustworthy. So they make a big, long list of those. Well, what we do is we'll take those. And these, by the way, are, are your top employees. You, you pick your top employees to do this. You put them through a little bit of training, not a lot. We don't emphasize a lot of the legal stuff and so on, um, which is what, you know, HR is worried about. What we do is say to these, to these folks, here's, here's how to do behaviorally based interviewing. Here's, you don't want to ask, what would you do if you want to say, tell me about a time when, and as a group, you're going to interview them as, as five people, you're going to interview them. And at the end of that, you need to reach consensus on either hire or not. And they have to reach consensus, which doesn't mean everybody loves a person, but they're willing to live with it. They believe enough in what the other people say or not. Typically, this group will re reject at least one or two out of three or four people that HR sends. 50%. Um, they'll reject 50%. 50% roughly. Yeah. Because they're looking for, they're looking for people like them. They're looking for people right. who are loyal and hardworking. And so they're looking for that. And then they take a personal interest in making sure that person succeeds and they can smell a 5%er so much better than a manager <laughs> can. Um, I mean, they, they just can, they, they can spot it. They can see it. 
Of they course, can, of they course. They quickly rule that person out. They've just got a better BS meter than the desperate supervisor who's who's trying to fill a job. Yeah, right, right. And and I believe me, I get that because we, amongst my various departments, it's like how quick can we get somebody in there? You know, we've we've had those scenarios a few times. Yeah, yeah, no, and and it's understandable. I get it. And you could be in, you could be getting a five somebody who really doesn't care. So that's how you keep them out. You keep them out by interviewing for traits, for uh-huh. character. Uh, Moral and ethical right. character, yeah. Yes, because you can train them to do the job. Yeah. What if they made it through if and they made you got to deal with it? And they do. <laughs> um, then what we do is a very unique approach to what the progressive discipline is. If you look at anybody that's got the progressive uh, disciplinary steps, you'll see the file that HR has on them is an inch thick. And that's because it's all worded in such a way that if you do something that doesn't meet a particular standard or rule, then you get a verbal warning and then you could get a written warning, but then you could do something different or you might have an attendance problem and, you know, on and on and on. And these guys use the rule book like it's a playbook. Mm -hmm. I mean, they know exactly, you know, how much to do and when to clean up their act and how to stay ahead. They use the rule book against you. (laughs) They use the rule book against you, whereas your 95 percenters don't even know what's in the rule book. Yeah, that's right. They don't even know. So these five percenters do that. Well, the discipline step just prolongs the amount of time you have to have them. So what we do is have an initial conversation and we say, Here's what you did. Here's the impact. What's going on? And we probe for what's going on. What caused that behavior or that lack of performance? And people can show up three ways. They can be very accountable. They can be collaborative and they can say, you know. They can own it. They can own it. Mm-hmm. In which case you move to, well, what are you going to do about it? Because mm-hmm. they're an adult. They should be able to solve it. Most cases are like that. Not with five percenters though. Um, <laughs> five percenters will typically blame other or you, or <laughs> they'll have a dozen different excuses uh-huh. or that, that, but they won't be cooperative. They won't take ownership. And when we say to those folks is, listen, I want you to go home and for the rest of the day, we're going to pay your pay's not an issue. Uh, we want you to think about whether or not these are expectations you can meet and this is a job you want. And if it is, I'd like you to come back with a written plan of how you, you're going to correct or prevent these things from happening again, along with, you know, a sincere commitment or not. If it's not something that you think you can do or want to do, just tell us and we'll affect a separation. Well, now you're not steps. Now this person has a choice. Five percenters typically either don't show up the next day. Right. That's exactly what I was thinking. Most of them aren't going to come back. They self-select out, which is a quit. You know, it's not even a termination or they can resign or they come back. I had an example where someone came back with a very insincere statement. And I said, you know, this doesn't read to me like you, you mean it. And he continued to be disrespectful. And when they're disrespectful, you say, you need to leave. We'll call you in the morning and let you know if you have a job. So one conversation with a five percenter can be the last conversation you have with that five percenter. Did I cut you off? No, no, you're good. So, so that's, just, that's just so much to dig into there. The disrespectful component of it, whether it's a coworker or a customer, I have a policy that is heavily enforced, which is we will not tolerate disrespect from coworkers or customers. And especially with customers, the minute a customer, the second a customer becomes disrespectful, 
any employee, the newest employee, the newest person on the team is authorized to ask that customer to leave. That's when things just go sideways. So zero tolerance for disrespect across the board. It's interesting. You say oftentimes uh, that 5% or won't show up. Uh, I have a discussion in Elevate Your Leadership uh, and it's performance versus behavior. And, you know, quite, quite simply, high performance, high behavior, that's what you're looking for. Behavior is moral and ethical character. And you want high moral and ethical character and high performance. And like you said, what do you do with a person like that? You give them more work. <laughs> you, yeah. you reward them, right? You give them more work. You keep them hungry. You keep them on the team doing great things. And the opposite of that is also easy. Low, low performance, low behavior. See ya. You know, how did you get through the hiring process? But as soon as you identify that, you got to show those low performers, low behaving people the door as quickly as possible. Because at the end of the day, that low behavior is poison. That low behavior is something that will literally spread and infect the rest of the people in your organization. Where it becomes tricky. So low, low behavior across the board. See you later. Where it becomes tricky is when you have high behavior and low performance. They're a good person, good moral and ethical character, but they're not performing up to the task. Well, that kind of goes back to what you said earlier. We and train. We yeah. Right. You, yeah. We tra- it may not even be a training issue. It might be a fit issue. It could be a number of things, but, but you talk to them as an adult and you, you're concerned for them and you're clear about the fact that the performance isn't, they know their performance isn't where it needs to be. They work every day knowing that's true. You know, allowing that to continue and the stress of that for that person, it's so much better to just directly say, look, I mean, there's a big gap here in terms of expectations and your performance. Tell me what's going on and see if you can't find out what the cause of it is. Unfortunately, most of our leaders haven't been used to asking lots of questions. You know, they're used to being problem solvers. Right, right. I had to go through an adjustment there as well, by the way. I'm a, I'm a recovered problem solver. <laughs> well, I think, we all, I think we all want to. I mean, it's a natural desire to try to solve a problem. And it's not the most effective in developing people. So as leaders, we need to be problem solving facilitators. Right. So we need to be asking the questions and trying to get at what the causes are and get getting the employee to peel back the layers. And maybe it's maybe they've got something going on at home. Maybe there's there's just a disconnect with in terms of uh, another coworker. It could there could be so many reasons why someone's not performing. Let's say in that discussion, somebody says, you know, my my significant other, my spouse and I are going through some some challenging, troubling times right now. What, when they reveal that, what's the appropriate action or response from the leader at that point, now that you've really uncovered the root cause? Clarifying the expectations again and saying, well, what do you think can be done about it? We still need the performance, yet I, I seriously understand you know, that you're going through a tough time. I want to be supportive of that as well. What ideas do you have to solve this? You continue to push it back on that person to solve. And, and if you wait they'll come up with something. Now they may ask you for a couple of days off or they may ask for something else, but don't offer it. If you think it's reasonable, absolutely give it, but don't be the problem solver again. Yeah. Force them to be the problem solver. I, I dealt with that many times with single moms with child care issues uh-huh. and absenteeism. And the, the thing I had to do is say, I remember one woman saying to me, she had a, she was gone a lot. And to, and to be fair, I don't think it was all child related, but I don't know that for sure. But when I talked to her, I said, you know, your management 
is very frustrated with you. She came to me and I said, your management's very frustrated with you. And you've got to find some kind of a plan B when these things happen because you're needed here at work. And she said, well, I'll tell you what, if something happens to my child at school and I need to be off, uh, that that child comes first. I said, I totally understand that. I just want you to know that you're making a choice when you do that. And sometimes that was a very traditional company where they had, you know, the progressive discipline stuff. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was already in the third stage. And I wasn't in any kind of position to do more with her. And she she really, she would have fallen into that group of people who was not taking accountability, you know, I'm, I'm going to be off if I'm going to be off versus the person who really wanted to be there, but didn't really have any backup plans where you could have worked with her. Yeah. Once so, again, using, using your manual against you. <laughs> yeah. Using your manual against you. And so what you want to do is just pro for the cause and always keep in mind that the person you're talking to is an adult. They, sure. they drive a car. They get on the highways, they rent, they own homes, they pay taxes. They, these are people who make life decisions. And yet when they walk through the door, somehow we believe that they're not capable of solving a performance issue. I don't know why that is. I guess because we're afraid then we won't have any role as managers. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, so, and you know, then, the, then there's the age old discussion of leadership versus management. Um, and I had a great podcast interview with a fellow by the name of Marty Strong about a month or so ago. And, you know, we kind of took that apart. He talks about leadership with a capital L and a small L. Capital L is leadership. It's being inquisitive and it's being bold and it's being visionary. And then small L is kind of like management. It's supervising processes that are already in place, looking for something out of parameter, applying the pre-authorized corrective measure, you know, the HR manual, whatever. It's kind of, kind of funny as you, as you talk and you kind of tell these stories, I think to myself, you are a recovering HR executive, right? So So the, Rebel, I think. Re- I used to say recovering, but I, I, I really don't think it ever fit me. I, I, I think I was always a rebel. I was just looking for a different methodology. Uh, one of the other things in the book you talk about is going back to the interview process, which you touched on earlier. You interview for these characteristics and these traits that really tell you what kind of team player this person is. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, typically, rather than creating the list, we've, we've got long lists of, that have been put together from work that we've done with many companies in, that have implemented hiring teams, high-performance hiring teams. The hiring team is the one who comes up with the list. And what we say to them, it, you know, they've got to have the stake in it. Who are you looking for? What are the characteristics you want? in the person that's coming to work because they're the ones that are having to deal with the revolving door, mm-hmm. new person every three weeks. They're having to deal with the 5%er who gets in. They're, they're having to deal with all that. So they, they have much higher expectations. I mean, they're looking for stuff like somebody's got a sense of humor. Sure. Um, absolutely. You know, definitely someone that's a team player. Definitely. We tell them, don't even look at previous experience. That's not important because in this job, you're going to do the training. Mm -hmm. Right, Um, right. You know, too often people are hired previous experience only and you're not even looking at are they trustworthy? And if you want to create a culture of high trust, you have to have people that are trustworthy. And the team is the one who draws that line, who makes sure that that exists. 
and, and only hires in those people you can trust. And once you have trust, everything becomes unlocked. Information right. becomes much freer. People feel that freedom. So it's a different world. It's a different, it's a different work world. Yeah. High trust is huge. I have a quarterly all hands with my company and we, we had ours last week and I give what I call a sermon. So, you know, I, we congratulate people for high performance and we recognize new team members and we say goodbye to those uh, that are moving on to bigger and better things. And then I give the sermon. My sermon last week was on being a good teammate and how important it is. If we can't be good teammates to each other, then nothing else really works or everything else is so much more difficult. If we start by being genuinely concerned about the welfare and the well-being of our teammates, it unlocks, to use your word, it really unlocks everything within the organization. And being a good team, and I look back at my career, my military career in particular, and a little bit of my private sector career, and there's times when I was not a good teammate. And I wish I would have been. And why, why wasn't I in that moment? But now that we very deliberately discuss that on a re- reoccurring basis, you know, and I can see it, I can see it happen. I can see the, you know, what can I do for you? Those are my words, uh, you know, key to my approach to leadership is what can I do for you? If somebody has an issue, if they're having a difficulty, what can I do for you? Um, how can I enable you? You know, my definition of leadership, once again, enabling others to accomplish their objectives. But being a good teammate is the bottom line. It doesn't matter what your role is, what your function is. Being a good teammate is critical to that organization uh, functioning properly. So there's, we, we really just talked about chapter one and two, maybe a little bit of chapter three. I would, I would love to talk about the, the rest of your book in great detail, but Let's have people get a hold of you. Before we talk about how they can get a hold of you, is there anything else that uh, we didn't cover that you think is really important in this awesome podcast discussion? I can't think of anything. It's, it's so, yes, I can. It's, <laughs> it's easy to, to talk with someone like you who's got experience in leadership, who's open, who's really focused on learning. I am saddened by the lack of focus on culture and leadership in companies and, and concerned because the future of work, which I studied during the COVID year off, um, <laughs> is going to require that we be more flexible, we be faster, we be more agile. It's, it's going to be required. And companies that just continue to do business as usual, continue to be that little L instead of the big L, that, that continue to do that are, are really going to suffer. And, and the, the employee base is, is going to suffer. So I'm looking for the folks we work for, look for and work with are those leaders who have vision, are creative, are still in a learning mode, even though they're very smart and they've got a lot of experience, they're still really open because things are constantly changing. And the things we do are, are and we advocate are different. They're common sense, but they're very different from current norms. Sure. And so it takes a little bit of risk, takes a little bit of thoughtful risk taking. So I'm so we're looking for those leaders because they will be the, the most successful and they're a joy to work with and the people that and then they impact the lives so positively of all the people within their sphere of influence. Yeah, you know, that's part of the responsibility of a leader is what you just said to positively impact 
the lives of those within your sphere of influence. That's, that's, that's well said. I just said that's three times, by the way, but that's very well said. Okay. How can people get a hold of you? By the way, I'm sending two of my teammates to your workshop uh, coming up in September, but how can people get more of Sue Bingham in the high performance workplace? Um, clearly go to our website. It's www.hpwpgroup.com. We can do that. I'm, I'm always open. I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a semi-retirement position, but can't ever let go because it's what I love to do. <laughs> um, so frequently talk and advise people. And, uh, but we've got an organization of people who are very uh, deep in this methodology, have used it, experienced it, know the quirks, know the resistance, know the different kinds of things that can happen. And um, we can help if anybody has, has a, a desire for creating that workplace where people love to come to work. Well, you know, you mentioned lifelong learning earlier and learning, lifelong learning is one of my six factors to the science of leadership, the science of leadership as defined by me, by the way, but, but lifelong learning is critical and I'm open to it. You know, I have, I have scars and bruises and, you know, all, all the things that make me open to learning to make sure I don't repeat the mistakes of the past among other things. So Sue Bingham, wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for being on the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. Until next time, everybody have a great day. See ya. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. To contact Bob directly or to learn more about how Bob can advance you and your organization through leadership training, team building, executive coaching, and public speaking, visit robertpizzini.com. Robert, P-I-Z-Z-I-N-I dot com and connect with him on LinkedIn.